On this episode, we are talking about a very incredibly relevant topic that all of us will experience multiple times in our lives, and that's dying and death and bereavement and grief. I sit down with hospice worker Nicholas Goodman, who has a beautiful perspective and learned understanding of what people at the end of their life experience, go through, and crave from their loved ones as they transition into whatever comes after this life. Today is a few days after what would have been my father's birthday. It's also the day following my second father's, who was actually my best friend's father's birthday, as well as death date. February marks for me death. And although it is dreary for some and catastrophic for others, learning to process death in a way that is healthy is something that can set you free from so much regret in this life. This episode is incredibly special to me, and I hope that you can find some grace with death and dying through this conversation. What we're not talking about with host Amy D. This is a friendly reminder that this show features heavy, hard, and sometimes bone-chilling conversations that are not meant for younger ears. In addition, swearing is present, and although attempted to be reduced to a minimum, it won't be edited in order to keep the integrity of the conversation. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to this episode of What We're Not Talking About. Today, I have with me Nicholas Goodman, who is an author, massage therapist, addiction counselor, and hospice worker. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Amy. Thanks for um, asking me to join you today. Yeah, I'm excited for us to talk about wherever this kind of conversation leads us. Sometimes I start with, you know, a topic or like a very specific viewpoint. Sometimes I'm just like, let's show up and see what happens. So I feel like we're going to do a little bit of both on this one. So let's jump in. Nick, like, Tell me and the listeners a little bit about you, a little bit about your childhood, and what led you down the career path that you find yourself in right now. Okay, thanks. It's definitely been an unorthodox journey, and I'm sure many people can say that, but childhood, sickeningly plain. At around 11, 12 years old, I rebelled against that turned to, you know, class clown, mischievous behavior, which was the beginning of a downward spiral. Got involved with drugs and alcohol, destructive lifestyle, which I didn't emerge from until my mid-20s. Had to go to treatment, cleaned up, and that's where I say I, I received my PhD before stepping into a classroom. I cleaned up, went back to school for addiction counseling, and worked in the field as an addiction counselor for several years. It was there that I recognized a correlation between grief and bereavement, love and loss, stuff like that with addictions. So I went back to university to study thanatology, which is death and dying, grief and bereavement, while simultaneously pursuing studies in gestalt psychotherapy. And when I was doing my internship at hospice, that's where I, I found another calling. So while I was there, I was doing emotional, spiritual counseling, but also therapeutic touch, Reiki, stuff like that. And that's where I saw the influence of physical contact with those who were dying. So I wanted to study massage. So that's how I ended up studying massage therapy was just by recognizing the need for holistic treatment for mind, body, soul, and to honor all the aspects of clients that I was working with. So that's it in a nutshell. That's beautiful. And I think that's something that I'm really actually very excited to talk to you about is the end of life care, which you are obviously an expert in, because that's something that we are not great at addressing as a society. But then because of we're not good with talking about death and dying on the whole, individually, it can be quite a 
hard topic or even worse for some people that just can't acknowledge that we all die. Oh, I know. It, it's it's such a, a negated element of conversation. And it comes up, honestly, when I see clients, not even hospice clients, but let's just say um, an everyday massage client or uh, a counseling client. And they'll say, I, I feel morbid talking about this. I feel strange talking about death. It's dark. And I don't share their sentiment, but I recognize at the same time, there are a lot of people who shy away from their mortality. And it takes a little bit of coaxing, a little bit of um, encouragement to have people open up about their fears, their worries, even their curiosity about death. And I think that's a great place to start is when I talk to people and they open up about, you know, whether it's a loved one dying or let's say, let's say them, let's say a hospice client. I treat it as if someone would treat speaking to a woman who's expecting. And, you know, what do you think it'll be like? What are your fears? What do you think's waiting after this transition? What Just to really coax them into viewing it as a parallel to birth. And I think that's the greatest way to go at it is from that gentle standpoint instead of death, doom, gloom. No, let's look at it as a transition. Tell me your curiosities and your wonder that's around it. And that's a lovely way to think about it and have that perspective because death is one of the only things that we don't know for sure. Yes, there have been people who have died and then been, you know, resuscitated and they have these stories of a white light. And there's also, you know, the more extreme versions of meeting with whomever they have met with in the in-between of dying and or leaving the body and actually dying. And I really have myself dove deep into this literature on this topic, as well as the philosophy and mentality on an individual uh, standpoint, as well as a whole. In this last year, I had two very close deaths happen to me. One was my father, in which I was... At the time, I didn't view it like this, but now I'm very thankful that I was with him when he died. He died quite suddenly. So he wasn't, he died outside in a, in a subdivision. So he wasn't in a hospital or anything like that. And then I also dealt with the death of my aunt who was incredibly sick and was someone who, like my other aunt, her sister, have been very like, they just pretended like it was never going to happen. They don't talk about it. They don't acknowledge it. And I'm the opposite. I talk very openly about it. And I'm someone that likes to process in community, in relationship, and then also, you know, philosophize about it as well, because we don't know what's going on. You mentioned about how you flipped the switch and you were like, well, what curiosities do you have about death? What do you find are central themes to that? Or is it something all over the place when it comes to the individuals that you help? I think in all honesty, it is, it often regards an afterlife. There is attachment to the physical body and throughout history, there's always been that fear around the physical body. I mean, even tracing it back to the epic Greek sagas of the Iliad and in that, you know, all the, the, the effort that was put into receiving Hector's body. And I think that still goes today is that we need proper funerary rites and we do worry about the physical body. So after death, but then the dying process of all the losses that accumulate begin to stack up before we even die. I mean, in your father's case, it sounds like it was sudden. You didn't know. So there's a, a different thing that goes with that. But when we have a gradual decline, we, you hear a lot about the curiosities of, will it hurt? Will I be able to breathe? That's a huge one. A lot of people have fear around, will, will my breath escape me? Will I be struggling in that sense? But beyond that, the curiosity really stems more to an afterlife. So many people go there. And I think even beyond our death-denying society, most people seem to be open to explore the possibility of rebirth or heaven or nothingness, if you will. Mm -hmm. So I think that's the common themes. Now for yourself, what, what's your curiosity? Um, my curiosity is I'm definitely very open-minded to 
spiritual paths. I'm like you, so I I, I take the stance of I don't know mm-hmm. what what awaits, but I will say I do know something awaits, and I spent a lot of time investigating it in, in meditation, um, contemplation through literature, but. I think the greatest source that I've read from, for my own curiosity, is from nature itself and to observe the cycles of the, the rising and fall of the sun, the waxing and waning of the moon, the ebb and flow of the tides, and to recognize that it, it, it seems illogical for, you know, I die, that's the end. Nick is the, you know, that's it. Nick is gone. Everything that I was is gone. I think that if I can take a lesson from nature, it's that there's a period of quietude, silence, and then something that precedes it. It's That's what I've drawn, is that I, I would lean more towards curiosity, towards rebirth. And maybe there is a heaven through the wintering of our soul, if you will, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Yes, absolutely. I, I'm a big, like I'm very big into Ram Dass and all the little avenues that come out from reading his, his books and listening to his lectures and talks. And I like him and you believe that nature is very telling to the cycles that we go through. And the way that we perceive death is that it's almost finite. Sometimes it's like, you know, this happens and then that's it. But because we don't know, and we most likely will never be able to actually know, it's very fascinating to me to talk to individuals about this as well because of the different mentalities and viewpoints that so many people have. To I'm not sure how familiar you are with the psychedelic aspect of death and dying when it comes to the Tibetan Book of the Dead uh, or anything like that. but. Timothy Leary, he is another one of the psychedelic renaissance, like grandfathers, or I don't know his actual title, but it's funny because he, and I found this fascinating, is that he dedicated his whole life more or less to discovering this. And at the end of his life, he was like, no, we just die and that's it. (laughs) I was just like, could you imagine? dedicating everything like your whole life to try and figure it out. And you're just coming up with that very simple, like, yep, this is the situation. Oh God, that's good. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe he just did it to toy with all of our fears or something. I don't know. (laughs) I mean, it's possible. I mean, he, he got quite sick too. So I, I do think that, and I, I've had this experience with myself where we're very, you know, tight on a idea or ideology related to death or not. And then something happens and then we become jaded or we become disheartened. And then it's much easier to just go with something that other people agree with because you have that comfort of being like of other people being like, yeah, yeah, you're right. You know? Mm. So kind of like the, the validation through the mask of other people believe it. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Go back to that instead of your individual standpoint. Yes. Yeah, exactly. And yeah, I, I I don't know. I think the more I've investigated life, death, the divine, everything, the more I go back to Socrates' whole view of I know nothing. Mm-hmm. And I keep my mind open with wonder instead of closed with belief. So that's not to say that I, I, I won't on certain days go, there's not a damn thing out there. I, where are you, God, great spirit, whatever we want to call him, it, they, and and question my faith. But I think that's, it has a point like you said, was it, did you say Timothy Leary? Yes. So with him, I think it has a point of faith and doubt are so intricately connected that the most terrifying thing is meeting somebody who just has faith and that's it. And I'm really good friends with a, a minister. We meet once a month and I'm not a Christian, but he is. And we leave our beliefs at the door and, and just say, let us, let us entertain the idea of the other person's beliefs wholeheartedly. And, you know, we can always pick them up when we walk back to the door, but let's even contemplate for a moment that there is no God, that there is no heaven. Let's stare into the dark oblivion of death and play with our fears. And then inevitably, after my, my humanness, if you will, I find I often return to my beliefs in something more. And my something more isn't that profound. It's like I said, observing nature, it's more of a humbling element of 
I am alive. I am not separate from everything else that is alive. I have just as much sacredness in me as does the blade of grass. And beyond this human hubris is a oneness of life that unites us all. And whether we choose to call that God, great spirit, the creator, or, or any other name, it's, it, it unites us all. So Nick cannot officially die. Amy cannot officially die. I think we will just return to this, this oneness. And maybe that is heaven. Maybe that is heaven is the disintegration of boundary and separation between self and other. And definitely working with people who are dying. I've seen stout atheists swear that they've seen Christ and the other way around. I've sat with Christians who their whole life believed in eternal bliss in heaven. And next thing they say, I don't see anything in God. Where are you? And I believe that Christ, even himself on the cross, questioned God, where are you now through my suffering? And we should all remember that, that we are human and we suffer and whatever divine being, if any, should be opening open to our questioning and to our doubts. Yes. I actually saw a quote that earlier today that really reminds me of what you just said. And it was said something along the lines of like, gods are just immortal men and men are just mortal gods. And I thought that was so beautiful and telling to my belief system anyways, because it's, I believe energy never dies. I mean, so does many scientists. So just to mm. quote some fact. So to me, it's like, how can maybe me as an Amy, the identity is gone, but the energy within that creates that identity doesn't ever fully die. Gotcha. No, I, I share your sentiments. I think I remember my son, of course, I've raised my chil children pretty, pretty philosophically. So they question a lot of things and which of the blessing and a curse. Of course, yeah. <laughs> I don't have the answers for most of them, but I was driving with my son and he was probably six at the time. And he's looking out the window at a weed field and he said, what do you think happens when you die? And I've always taken the standpoint of, I don't know. And I propose ideas to them and see what speaks to them to give them that autonomy to discover. But I said, I'll tell you what I think. So I led him through it and I said, okay, let's just say a bird dies in that field. The bird dies, what happens? And he said, well, it rots. And I said, yeah. And he said, and, and then what? And then the rains wash it into the soil. It becomes a wheat. Now when the other birds eat this wheat, it flies again with the birds. And he understood in that moment the profound truth that, you know, let's just say spirit, everything else aside, on a molecular level, there is rebirth. And that is, in, in my book, A Moment with Grace, so there's a profound realization in it for myself when I was writing it. And as I'm laying there and facing death, I say, life is not mine. It was, no, life was never mine to begin with. I simply borrowed it from the earth. And that is what I believe is that this life force, this giving energy is the oneness and it is the earth, it's the universe, it's the cosmos all in one, this creative element. And that's what I believe around mm -hmm. it. And my son on his own realization, a little bit of guidance came to that, that simple realization of we will just change. And I don't know about the transmigration of the soul. That's the whole other topic. But I know that Nick's physical body will inevitably, if I'm buried under a tree, turn into the bark, turn into the berries, turn into that, and then the other countless things that carry it on. And if people can stop and have the realization that life is catabolic, that before a meal, if we can sit there and say grace and recognize all the spices, all the herbs, all the vegetables, animals, all of these things that gave up their life in a sacrificial manner, so that you could carry on. Then when it is your time to return to um, the earth, maybe we would do so with a lot more humility. Yes. I, yeah. <laughs> I mean, that'd be nice. Wouldn't it? If we could, it would. <laughs> it'd be really nice. Thing and moaning that I will do on my death. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I just, it's, it's so interesting. Like this topic is something that I've just have sat with first. I mean, before the theme of death, perpetuated my life and for this last year it was something that I was always very scared of 
you know, because it was in my eyes, the really the one unknown and, you know, ego loves to, to grab onto quote unquote finite facts, even though then we have another discussion to go into, but we won't. (laughs) Um, It's freeing almost to be able to view death in this way, because it's not as scary. It's not just, it ends. Sure. Our brain's not there in the way that we want it to be. The identity, the, the knowledge that we accumulated over our lifespan is gone, but, or is it, I mean, maybe it's not, but it's, it's been a really beautiful transition in my mindset for me. And I truly believe that it was one thing that helped me overcome this year in a way that previous Amy would have not been able to overcome. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, sorry. But no, that is the the part. I find it difficult to connect with people who, how can I put it, are so engrossed in the spiritual world that they're no longer down here with us humans, if you will. Mm-hmm. Because I can tell you, whenever I've sat with someone who's dying, I've often felt that fear of recognizing my time will come. And I will stand there. And no matter what, I don't know how much I think we can prepare for it. But either way, there's always something left to be lived. Mm-hmm. There always is. It's, you know, if someone's in hospice and they just want to hang on for the extra week to see their their child graduate or they want, there's always something. If If we can, if we've lived a great life, there's always something to live for. So to let go of that is difficult for anybody. The Buddha himself on his deathbed said to his disciples, life is so sweet. I wish that I could, could only live for another hundred years. So if this man, the awakened one, would come to that realization, I think we all, if we've lived our life right, we'll see it that way, that this is a beautiful life and I've lived a, a great life, but sadly it's coming to an end and there's a lament to come with that. Yeah, and that's, it's hard to to really to not acknowledge it, but to really be able to sit with it in a way where fear isn't surrounding it. It might not be a hundred percent, but like for me, like I've intellectually and like spiritually, all the things have like what I believe to have formed an idea that works for me. But when it comes down to it, I imagine that I'll be like, Oh no, like <laughs> let's stop. <laughs> like, Or maybe I won't, who knows? Like, I, I mean, I'm just assuming where I'm at right now, but that's how I'll be. I think for me also, it will greatly depend on age, which is mm-hmm. ironic because like, you know, we have the spiritual belief of age and then me being like, well, if it's young, what, like in your experience, when dealing with people that are in hospice, when it comes like outside of death, is there any fear? Well, sorry, but not outside of death, but is there any fear that doesn't, that, that shows up regularly that doesn't have to do with the actual physical death of dying? Oh yeah. Lots. If I was to look at a correlation, a lot has to do with unfinished business with people in our lives. That's, it always comes back to that to some degree, you know, being able to find an estranged child or or even unfinished business with someone who may not be available anymore, someone they can't speak to and they want to. I worked with one hospice client and they were uncertain if their childhood friend was alive. They had lost contact. They had a falling out. And it was something that always preyed on him. So he wrote letters and um, sealed them all with the hopes that one day they would um, receive them. And he gave them to his wife and he had them all organized. I'm not sure. I haven't been in contact with his wife, but I'd like to think that those letters found their way. So the possibility of, I don't want to say closure, but just wrapping things up in a pretty bow, if you will, mm-hmm. yes. before we cross over. That, that's a common thing. There's As long as there's breath in our lungs, I think people recognize there is work to do. And by work, I, I mean expressing love, reconciliation something of that sort. I've, I've seen a lot of people go through that. And I bet that probably helps. I don't want, I'm going to use this word, but this might not be the appropriate word, but restore faith in humanity for, for you as well. Because if 
we're at the end of our bed, like out of the end of our lives and we're in our deathbed or on our deathbed. And that's what we're preoccupied with, like mending the, all the wrongdoings. To me, that shows that we are inherently good people. Mm-hmm. I, I think so. I, I have, I've met some defeated people in hospice who the pain and the suffering has just, has sapped their spirit, if you will. And that, that's heartbreaking. People who are, who are ready to cross over and die, but it's certainly not with grace. It's more of this, this melancholic resignation, if you will. Yeah. And that's sad. So for myself, I think it complements my life beyond the fear that evokes at times when I'm sitting in the presence of death, recognizing that one day he'll be sitting at my bed, is living my life with that recognition of, you know, let's say, I don't want to be a person who's laying there dying in a car accident or something going, I wish I told my daughter I loved her. Or I wish I didn't say this to my mother. So I think it grants a perspective. There is the Greek philosopher Epictetus. He has a, a rather controversial statement in his book Discourses. And he says, tonight when I kiss my son goodnight, I'll say to myself, he could be dead in the morning. And some people look at that and go, that is just, <laughs> that is just disgusting. But I view it as when I've done that with my own children and said that to myself, I feel that kiss. I'm fully present and I'm cherishing it just right in that moment. And that is what working in hospice does to me is recognizing if this is the last time that I was to see my friend, how, how much warmer would I hug them? How much deeper would I look into their eyes? And that is the complement of living life with a daily evaluation of our mortality, if you will, a daily recognition of it. So yeah, it's definitely complimented me, all of these clients that I've met. And that seems to be a common theme that they would tell me too, is, you know, go home. It's the, it's the little things that we take for granted. It's, you know, there, death comes in many ways, as you found out in this last year, especially. And it can come in one fell swoop and next thing you're gone. Or it can be a, a gradual descent into death. And with those people, it's the, it's the little things along the way they lose that we may learn to appreciate more if we recognize it, such as having the ability to walk into our kitchen to make a cup of coffee. And just in that sentence, the ability to walk into our kitchen and make coffee if you're in hospice, those things are just a melancholic yearning, a nostalgia of what used to be. So when we do that, it's almost like a Buddhist standpoint of cherish that as you're holding your favorite cup of coffee, feel it in your hand, smell it, breathe it in. Um, yeah. Yeah. That's, that's so telling because to talk a little bit about what you said with the, the like kissing your son at night and the, I can never pronounce I always, in fairness, I didn't think that's how it was pronounced. So now I feel like his, because I know what philosopher you're talking about, but I've always pronounced it differently. So I'm not going to say it. So that person. Um, so in my experience, I, with my father, so he was, so it was sudden, but he was like a very sick person. He was still living on his own and he was still like, oh, like pretty capable. He could drive and go grocery shopping, but he had a long history of, he became obese during my childhood years. So he went from just like slightly overweight to like clinically morbidly obese. And then with that came like a series of like really not to be rude towards my dead father, but disgusting ailments that accompanied like what was going on with his like inner inner being, if you will. Mm -hmm. And he was in a, like, he thought he was having like a long-term anxiety attack. And now we kind of view it as like, he was just having a heart attack for a long period of time. And I, my parents are separated. So he lived alone and, or divorced. And I was in the middle of a huge argument with him that was spanning like months. We have a really complicated past. There's a lot of drama. We'll all use that word <laughs> between him and I. And I had this moment of just like, say, I love you. Cause on the last phone call I had with him, like I had been like kind of mean to him and all this stuff. And I was just like, just say it. And I was like, no, no, no. And I was like, just swallow your pride and say it. And I swear to you, because I did that, 
that was something that I will always remember and always hold on to, to be like, you knew somewhere inside your head that this was going to happen. And you put down your defense mechanisms of being angry or whatever it was to tell him that you loved him. That's and beautiful. Yeah, it is so beautiful. As I kind of am tearing up right now. I, I will also say my father's death anniversary comes up in like three days. So like I'm a little bit of a mess sometimes. It's a great time to have this conversation. <laughs> yes, exactly. And this is actually going to go live like two days after his birthday. So, you know, another on purpose as well. <laughs> but yeah, it's just... I think we really, you hear these stories from people and people are listening and they've never experienced it. It may be falling on deaf ears as well, but you don't really understand the impact of those simple actions for both the person that is dying or has died as well as yourself. Because as you said, like you have these regrets, but those regrets can transfer to the people that are grieving the the death of a loved one as well. Mm-hmm. Now, that's great that you had that intuitive nudge and you followed it beyond your own resistance to tell him that you love him. And that is that that definitely does speak to the closure that mm-hmm. people find. It, it's it's there's very little consolation in death, mm-hmm. but we do find it. And I think that's what keeps us going along is when all of a sudden, you know, you said, I love you. And that is a form of consolation. And had you not done that, I'm sure your grief would weigh a little heavier than it does now. Yes, absolutely. And to shed like some more light, I like I'm was very like into metaphysics and the spirituality aspect of life before this. But his death solidified that without going. I could talk like for hours about this, but to do it in a succinct way, the day that he died, he called me and he said, I'm having anxiety attack. I'm in the middle of my subdivision. I need you to come and get me and drive the car back home because I cannot drive. I mean, it wasn't that like, you couldn't really understand that's what he was saying, but that's essentially what he was saying. And I remember being like, do you need me to call 911? Like, maybe we should do this. Like, and he was very scared of doctors. So he was always like, no, no, no. So I didn't, ironically, I listened to him for once in my life. But what happened when I arrived is he very quickly deteriorated, which I'm sure is a common theme that you've seen. Whereas once they hold on to a certain point, they feel like they have been able to, they can let go. Mm -hmm. And the first person, so we're on the middle of his subdivision on the side of the road. The first person to stop was a off-duty firefighter who had like protective gear to be able to give him uh, CPR and mouth to mouth. The second person to stop was his best friend who did not live in the subdivision. And I have no idea why he was in that subdivision with his stepson, who was also like almost like a son to my father. Cause I'm an, I'm an only child. So, and then the third person to stop was someone, or it was the person that he knew who he was friend friendly with that basically sold him the property that he lived on now. And it was so random and just in the succession. And my father, because of his sickness and because of a lot of his mental health problems, had a very small circle of friends. So essentially, 70% of his loved ones were with him when he died. And just, just like that too. Just like that. And it was like one of the most insane moments of my life because I was like, you know, I don't believe in coincidence. And this is one large coincidence happening right now, you know, and my dog was with me too. So that made it like a little bit, you know, he had even someone else, but yeah, like those experiences, like, I know I am, I don't want to say I'm lucky, but I, I do have a lot of gratitude because so many people don't get that closure. So many people don't get that grace in the process. And I always viewed it as something so profound, or I still view it as something so profound in a way that I was just like, tell me there's not something greater going on right now. You know, I just yeah, certainly reassuring. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But it's so, it's so fascinating to me to talk to people that have these beliefs on death that have never really experienced it in a close up way with like close loved ones or, you know, have worked with them as well, because I do believe that that's another element of it. Now you mentioned earlier a lot about 
like their melancholic kind of viewpoints as they die. So there's a lot of, do you, would you say there's more regret or less regret with the people that you help transition? I think it's, it comes, it's often said how we, how we live is how we will die. And, and taking that phrase to, to mind, it would imply that if we lived our life rather regret-free and not in a careless way, but I mean, telling people we love them, being present for people, stuff like that, giving back, then when it's time to die, we will most likely meet it with grace. But if someone has lived their life creating regrets, feeling guilt, feeling shame, they'll most likely die with that. So it's it comes down to really how we live. And it's, I don't know, I, I remember my, my, I had a really good friend who passed a few months ago and he was, he was my music teacher. And he was an, an atheist, hardcore atheist. So it was funny that we were such good friends. And his wife had died 10 years before, and he never recovered. She was the, the joy in his life. She was just everything to him. And as he was approaching death, he started to entertain spirituality. And she became, in a sense, his spirituality. He found some comfort believing that they would be reunited. And when I met him previously, he didn't have that. He thought, this is nothing, this, this is nothing. But I have to tell you, for an atheist, a former atheist, there's only been two people in my life that have looked into the eyes of death with no fear, and he was one of them. Interesting. So it was, I don't know, it was, it was interesting for me. And it also reiterated my own courage in looking at my death seeing him so calm, so stoic, and so welcoming. He was more curious about his death because he believed on some level he would see his wife. Mm -hmm. And that in itself led him through that darkness. And he left with some unfinished business because nothing can ever be wrapped up completely perfect. But he managed to find spirituality at the end. He found comfort. He wrapped up what he could. And then he thought the rest would be taken care of after death. He thought he'd be back in his beloved's arms. So... It, it was nice to see. Yeah, that would be, that would be beautiful. Do you believe the same thing? Do you think that you will be reunited with your beloved when you pass? Regar- well, I mean, if you were to pass first, obviously there'd be some time of waiting, but if that, you know, the end <laughs> result, <laughs> what, what's your belief there? Or do you have one? I don't really have a solidified belief around that. I'd have to say that I believe that we return to some oneness. And I think mm-hmm. that separation isn't isn't necessary in death. I think that when we die, we return to the source, if you will, into that other realm. I don't know if there's spirits waiting, but I will say that in my hospice work, I had one client and he had a brain tumor and we were really close. We bonded beautifully. We'd go fishing and I hate fishing. I suck at it, <laughs> but I'd go anyways just for the time. And we'd sit there and talk about matters of the heart. And he was supposed to live for probably six months. And he died suddenly. And his wife called me and said he died last night. He had a seizure, died. And I cried and I felt, you know, the moments we shared, I still was hoping to see him through, if you will, and have it wrapped up a little more beautifully. And then I was sleeping one night. And in my dream, so lucidly, so vividly, he came to me with his wife. And we both cried and hugged and he thanked me and then he left. And I've had experiences like that where, you know, someone might chalk it off and go, oh, that's, you know, a Freudian thing of an unfulfilled wish you're living out in your night. No, there was no doubt I could feel his presence and I know he was there and it's something that I will always remember. Mm-hmm. So I think that as he crossed over, I don't know, because his wife wasn't dead, but her spirit was there. So I think on some level, we're always connected to the source. Absolutely. I mean, I believe that we can operate on like different planes as well. Like we're, we're not just in this 3d reality. We're also in other areas. So that goes well with my belief system. So I I hear that. (laughs) I'm just like, yeah, I I understand. So, so the one theme that I, I mean, I wasn't really like guessing, but I guess I'm a little surprised that I hear in with, through what we're talking about, which warms my heart is that you have become quite close with a lot of the individuals that you help transition into their 
their end of life, which obviously now that I'm thinking about it makes perfect sense. But how, like, how is that for you? Like what grieving process do you have? Do you have like a specific, I don't want to say regiment, but for the sake of this conversation, I'll say that, that you go through when you do experience loss. I believe strongly in prayer and I believe strongly in ceremony mm-hmm. and some, some clients, I think, you know, there's a lot of debate and a lot of opinions on how close you should get to a hospice client and addiction client that I'd work with. And I believe in showing up wholeheartedly, not sympathetically or anything like that. I'm not here to save them, but to show up and to connect on that deep of a level so that I can grieve. I think that if someone is doing deep emotional work with another person, that if when the person dies, they aren't heartbroken to some degree, I think that they didn't completely show up. Mm-hmm. And there's been some losses that rattle me to my core and I need to take a few days and compose myself and lots of ceremony, prayer, meditation, revisiting times we had, stuff like that, just grieving mourning. But other ones have just left with such grace that like my friend who died, it was there wasn't a lot of sadness. It was, this is beautiful. And this man has stepped into the other side with such courage that I can only admire him. And the ones that have really taken me off was I worked for five years in addiction centers and I've stayed close with a lot of clients just through Facebook or I believe in, you know, seeing them out through their, through their journey. I don't like it to end. And it does end sometimes if I don't have the luxury of finding out what happened to someone or in some way having an email or something. But certain clients will tell me about so-and-so passing and some of them, it's like getting punched in the gut, you know, a young aspiring man with children sometimes. And all of a sudden it's like so-and-so died and it just tears my heart out. And I need to remember that I don't personalize that. I know I did my part and I, I did all that I could. So in no way do I have regret over not helping them. It's more of, I saw the potential and I saw the kind, caring heart and I connected to it. And it's a tragedy that they, they are a casualty in the fight against addiction. Mm-hmm. But to move a little bit away from hospice and the addiction work, I think there it might have beat me more. Because in hospice, mm-hmm. it was, you were looking into the finality of death. Mm-hmm. With addiction, it was the possibility of life. Mm, yes. Yes. And that, those are very different. Yeah. I, I never really thought of it like that. Those would be very like opposite spectrum types of help, wouldn't it? Mm-hmm. And there, I think people often ask me, they say addiction work and what's harder addiction or hospice work. Hospice work is, I love it because people are hungry for connection, for purpose, to examine meaning to have soulful exchanges where a lot of addicts are thawing out and, you know, they're going, fuck you. And the court mm-hmm. sent me here. And so it's, yeah. a, it's a totally different resistance that you're meeting where hospice, a lot of hospice clients are just so welcoming and just welcome you in. And they, you know, because it's hospice care and end of life care. If, if we could understand something that I, that I think is essential for people to understand in cases someone is going through that they know is, their needs are basically the same as yours and mine are when we're in health. They're only accentuated because they're at the mercy of other people. So in other words, we all need connection. We all need meaning. And, you know, if I want to connect with someone right now, I can probably call a friend up. I can go meet them. I can go have coffee with them where someone in hospice is at the mercy of someone else's grace. Mm-hmm. So I think that's what we need to remember is through the the needs are always there. It's just all of a sudden we may not be able to go out and attain them. We might not have the the strength. So sitting there with somebody, let's say they're no longer coherent. I believe that they can still feel you and they can't say, Hey, come here on a conscious level. I believe spiritually, maybe, but you know, all of a sudden to go and let's say your grandmother's dying and to recognize that, this is an act of your grace. And I think the beauty with that is I went to my friend's mother's Jewish funeral and I just wanted to attend to support him, but also to see because the Jewish tradition has such deep mourning rites. And I remember we all filled the grave in and they said, 
this is considered the final mitzvah. I hope that's what it's called. That's what I've remembered it as. And it's where everybody takes a shovel to fill in the grave and they view it as a mitzvah, as a, a selfless act that can never be repaid by the recipient. And if we look at hospice work, it's more or less like that. If I go and sit with them, they can't really pay me back in this lifetime. I'm doing it out of my grace and my care. And yes, I might get some little things, but ultimately it is a final mitzvah, like filling in someone's grave. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, now before we end, I, I do want to go back to something that you said at the very beginning. And I think it would be really cool to hear how you discovered this, but you said that through your hospice work, you realize that physical touch is something that is craved by the individuals at the end of life. Now, how did you come to that understanding and how has that impacted your work as a hospice worker now? So the realization in the beginning, I think there is a, a simple story that I'll say. And there was a woman in the hospice waiting room and she was weeping. Her mother was dying and she wasn't conscious. And I sat with her and talked with her. And she said the worst part. She knew her mother was going to die. She that terms with it. It was that she was in pain. So I, I asked her if she'd be comfortable with me doing a simple therapeutic touch and Reiki. And she agreed. So we went in the room and I approached cautiously. I did a scalp massage, some Reiki. I went to walk away and her daughter was was crying. And I, I asked how she was doing. And she pointed at her mom and she said, she's smiling. She hasn't smiled in two weeks. So beyond the skepticism that goes with Reiki and therapeutic touch and certain modalities from the scientific world, is a realization that in that moment that her mother found joy, comfort, and love through my touch. And that in itself is the magic. Mm-hmm. Yes. It's so, I think that's so beautiful. Like the, the smile. Cause that's something that I like, again, I never really thought about when it came to like, if they are incoherent at the end of life, like, can they still make facial expressions? But I guess the answer is yes. Sometimes, sometimes not. It's such an individual okay. moment to moment change, if you will. It's, you know, some people will wake up with lucidity at points. Some people just slip away. There's other points where somebody's spirit, if you will, vacates before they're dead and it's tangible. And I've heard people say that and I felt it. It's you go in the room and their body's there, but it's their spirit's gone. And I had a client who, not a hospice client, a massage client, <laughs> who she told me when her father was dying, she went in to see him and she could feel his warmth. And the following day she came back and his warmth from his spirit was gone. And she said, in that moment, I knew that he was just hooked up to these machines, but he was gone. And she didn't even stick around to the moment of death because she realized he had vacated that physical body days before. Oh, that's, that's powerful though, because it would take, I don't care who you are. Like that would take a really like strong conviction to be able to do that. But it's obvious that to me anyways, that it was, she, she was right in that sense, because as you said, like, I, I'm very good at feeling energy, like very good at it. And I wonder or not wonder, but I imagine that I would probably do the same. And I know like my, my grandmother that died about 10, 10 years ago. Well, she had like severe dementia. And I remembered like going to her and seeing her and being like, but she's not there. You know, like who she, who I know she is, who everybody else knows who she is. She's just, as you said, like her body. and to me, that was harder than anything, actually, because I was just like, we're just keeping her alive for what purpose? Mm-hmm. Well, Nick, this has been wonderful. I always think that I'm going to like not have anything to say. I'm always wrong. Exchange. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> yes. Well, thank you so much for speaking with me and for the listeners to hear your experience with death and what you've learned for everyone that wants to connect with Nicholas, you can do so by going to the show notes in the description and all his links and everything that you need to find him. You will be able to do that on that webpage. Now 
I always ask the experts to leave the audience with some words of wisdom. I'm going to narrow it down a little bit for this conversation. Now, for everyone that is either experiencing death with a loved one or the end life end of life process or people that are just blatantly terrified of the possibility of death either for loved ones or for themselves what advice do you have for them to show up with grace in this process to show up with grace with a dying relative or someone who's dying yes yes you know what's interesting is i I think the best advice, and I can sum it up, but if you read my book, which is called A Moment with Grace, everything is in there because it's the, an investigation of life and death, love. It's the pursuit of love. It's a, it was a journal that I kept for 10 years that builds the foundation of it. And there's so much in that. So in this moment, just taking a word out of that, it is grace, and you said it yourself, and to deepen their understanding of what grace is. And to to narrow it down, to think about this, grace is the, the, the divine love. That's how I view it. It's love between creator and creation, between everybody. It coexists between everybody, and it's seen in lucid moments. So if you will, if you think about your father, let's say, I don't know your relationship if he was present at your birth. But if your father was present at your birth, he would have taken you in his hands. He would have embraced you and given you love. And then as he was dying, you held him in your hands and gave him the same. That is grace. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of What We're Not Talking About. It would mean the world to me if you subscribed and shared this episode with anyone you think needs to hear it. As valued listeners, I also wanted to remind you that if you're ever looking for a specific topic to be covered, please get in touch with me on Instagram. My username is amy.demone, or you can simply click the link in this podcast description. I can't wait to hear from you. 